Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. From the nation's capital... This is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snowett. Thank you for downloading the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. This is Series 1, Episode 43, Fly Fishing Stories. We're going to give a shout out in this episode to Nick S. Nick had sent me an email requesting some fly fishing stories. Nick is from Cincinnati, Ohio. He began fly fishing a few months ago after receiving a fly rod as a gift, but he hasn't really been able to put it down. He sent me an email with a massive smallmouth bass, so give him some kudos for that. He's been learning on his own. He's been watching YouTube videos some of mine. He's been listening to podcasts like mine as well. He wants to know some more stories, less, um, I guess, instructional for for once. So we're going to do some stories. Some of these are going to be a little uh, dirty. So if you are younger than 18, you might want to turn your volume down now or go listen to another podcast. There's definitely going to be some talk of excrement, bodily fluids, etc., So let's start this podcast. This edition is brought to you by Sitka Gear. Sitka Gear brings you some of the most high-tech digital camouflage clothing and gear in all of the outdoor world. Visit them at sitkagear.com, S-I-T-K-A-G-E-A-R.com. And if you want to buy some of the products, please visit ProGuideDirect.com and be sure to put my name down when you purchase things so I get commission. There's a direct link to ProGuideDirect and my store on ProGuideDirect on my website, RobSnowWhite.com. So let's start the stories. We're going to sort of go out of order here. These are random. When I got the email from Nick, I kind of just sat down with my iPhone and started typing some notes up about different Funny trips, some good ones, some bad ones, hilarious ones. I can give you two things of advice before I start the podcast. One, never have any regrets when it comes to fly fishing. I've got regrets that go back a decade, and I can still, like I'm going to tell you now, tell you how pissed I am about the situation. 
and get a job in a fly shop. Now, retail and working in a fly shop isn't for everyone. I'm telling my friend Rebecca, who listens to the podcast, she's going steelheading with us this week, get a job in a fly shop. It's not just the wealth of knowledge you gain there. It's not just the discounts. It's not just the invites to fish with guides and it lodges so you can suggest them to clients. It's the camaraderie you get from working with like-minded people. And when I worked at the Orvis store in Tyson's Corner from 99 to 2003, I was with a bunch of characters and we got into some trouble. We did a lot of crazy things. Some of these stories, um, whenever it happened, it wasn't for Tom and Stone and Nick and Brian and Scoville and just a couple other people. Um, Ben, I've got, there's stories about Ben, like the time we were driving to the, um, Kent Narrows one night and he had to pee in the back of Tom's truck. And I think he pissed in a stripping basket and kept the basket on the back seat of Tom's truck because it was too small to dump out of the rear window. And that night we were going to find a new fishing spot at an old abandoned restaurant that a customer at the fly shop told us about. And apparently while we were driving down the street, they saw a guy masturbating through his windows with the blinds open out on Kent Island in Maryland. And they still, the two of them still chuck and chuckle about that. I didn't see it. I was just noticing all the, uh, the crab styrofoam buoys hanging from the trees, which was really creepy in the guy's yard. So that's just one of the stories. All right. I want to talk about Africa. I went to Africa in the summer of 1998. It was going into my senior year at Mary Washington college. I had an invite from my friend Heather, who I sat next to all through high school. Her last name was one letter off of mine, so Snow White and Snyder used to sit next to each other in every class. And then we were both uh, biology geeks. She works in Alzheimer's research in Chicago, and I use my degree for fly fishing. And I had a cousin named Sam who was blown up in the Korean War. He stepped on a landmine. His only source of income throughout his life was gambling. He had a bunch of money saved away because basically he was extremely depressed. He was very um, torn up physically, emotionally, mentally from this. He um, had shrapnel that would come out of his skin. I mean, just an awful, awful story. And he lived in squalor in the Bronx, but he had all his money squared away. And one summer after my dad brought him down here to live in assisted living down the street from us, he just handed me a check for $2,000 and Sam said, go have some fun. I said, okay. And my parents, when they heard that Heather invited me to go to Africa, said, you've got the money, do it. So the deal was Heather got to travel to Africa every summer until she graduated college on the government's dime as her dad worked for USAID. And he lived in the capital of Namibia, which was Windhoek or Windhoek, if you read it in English. So I don't remember how we planned the trip, but it was basically... Just get to Vindhook and her dad was going to take care of it. So we get there and we do the Namib Desert. I, the coolest thing I've ever done in my life. You know I'm a diehard fly fisherman. The one single coolest thing in my entire life was riding an ATV through the sand dunes on the Kalahari Namib Desert along the ocean front of the Atlantic Ocean. It was insane going up you know, 1,500 foot high dunes catching air and going down the other side i still have sand in my day pack from that trip it has not come out 14 years later 
I could have shot all my film. And back then, we shot with actual uh, like film, not digital. So I had 73 rolls of 36 exposure. And I had a bunch of print film too. I probably had two cameras with me. I probably could have shot all my film there. Or a couple of days later when we were watching a leopard um, feeding on some old meat behind a blind. And I mean, I've... In Africa, I got bit by a baby lion. I got bit by a penguin. I've been stung by bees. I've been bit by ants. I've been charged by elephants. I've been bit by fish, by birds. Um, you name it. Things have happened to me. I once walked backwards into a poisonous tree in the Galapagos and I had this fiery rash all over my neck. The one thing that scared me the most was having a leopard, wild leopard look at you in the eyes. Now, three days before, we had a lion charge us. We were in a blind, and he stuck his paw through the gap that's just big enough for your camera. And the woman next to us, I think, crapped her pants. She was German. She was like 6'4", and she fell backwards and knocked a bench that was cemented into the ground, out of the ground. That wasn't as scary. Having a lion charge you with an open paw the size of a, a catcher's glove is not as scary as having a leopard stare you in the eyes. And I'm going to put pictures up of this leopard and the lions and all that um, on the blog and website. So we're in Africa and in college, you know, the internet was pretty basic in like 97 and I had done, there wasn't Google, maybe Yahoo dog pile, um, basic internet searches for fly fishing, South Africa. And I found a guide and I can't remember his name, but we agreed that he would take me out. I don't remember if it was for pay or if he just wanted to take me fishing in South Africa. So we did a couple of weeks in Namibia and honestly, I can't say I fished. I'm pretty sure I wet a line at Swakopmund, which is like a gambling town on the coast. It means mouth of the Swakop river. And I don't honestly, I can't say I fished there. There's no pictures of it, but I'm pretty sure as a fly angler, I brought my eight weight down and I purposely bought an Orvis nine foot, eight weight, four piece rod for this trip because I didn't know what I was going to get into. So I have my seven foot five and my nine foot eight. A couple weeks later, we get to Cape Town and I call up the guide on the phone and he's like, oh, sorry, mate. You know, it's at 6 p.m. The, the gates and park closed at 430. We can't get a permit to go fishing up there, but I can tell you some places to go. So we write down a reservoir and some other spots that he suggests to go. And the next morning we get up and we were staying at Parle, Reebok's Kloof, um, man, I could in Cape town, uh, a bunch of other places. Honestly, I don't remember the names. I'd have to dig out the Atlas and, and maps from when I went there. It was all in the vineyards and it was May of 98. So it was the fall and it was like being in San Francisco on a spring or fall day, chilly, lots of leaves falling. And just, you kind of want like apple cider or hot cocoa. You're wearing a thick sweater and some nice hiking boots. So I get my fishing license and we go to this reservoir, and Heather and her dad are like, we'll drop you off, we'll come back in four hours. So I go to, it's like, um, not even like a hut, it's more like an empty train car, and you walk in there, you pay the guy five bucks, and he gives you oars and a life jacket, and he says, go up to the top of the reservoir, you can fish. The pictures on the walls were of like 10 and 15 pound trout that were all just gut. These things were disgusting, like little heads, little tails and just bellies like footballs, like like a triploid fish would be. A triploid is a, a trout that 
has extra chromosomes in it. And instead of using its energy for um, gamete and production, it's going to use that to build mass. So these are just giant fish. And I'm like, sweet. I'm going to, you know, I, I've only caught brook trout at this point and one rainbow trout at a stock pond in Kriglersville, Virginia. So I'm like, sweet. I'm going to catch some big fish. I get this rowboat. If you've ever been to Fletcher's Cove in DC, you know how rickety those boats are? Those things were like Cadillacs compared to this thing. I mean, it was a dinghy. I'm, I'm surprised I have to use like bubble gum and boogers to patch the holes in it. It barely floated. And I'm going around this lake. There's sunken trees. There's a dam. There's shade. I'm throwing, you know, all these flies. I wasn't that much of an accomplished tire at the time because I, in college, I actually studied. I was spent my entire time in the library, so I didn't really tie a whole lot between high school and that part of college, except for like Clouser Minnows for the Shad and Striper on, on the Rappahannock. So I get out there and I'm throwing, I got both rods strung up. I'm throwing like streamers and poppers and bass bugs and sneaky peats. I only brought one fly box with me, jammed full of like nymphs and dries. You name it. I'm not getting jack squat. So I decide I'm just going to troll a clouser minnow or half and half behind the boat so i strip out like 40 feet of line and this is where you're gonna write this down don't do this so i'm just rowing around the lake in this crickety old boat the oars were just squeaky and the rod stops so i kind of lift it and jerk it i'm like well it's not a fish it didn't set the hook i hooked a log so i reel in and as i'm reeling in the boat goes closer and i can see down like 10 feet of water it's on a log so I just yank up and psh, the sound of graphite exploding. My nine foot eight weight breaks into like five or six more pieces. So I cut off the fly. I back to the docks and sit there in the shade waiting for Heather and her dad to pick me up. I got the five weight still. It's seven feet long. It's a four piece rod. It's the one that I caught my bull trout on. I don't need to tell the bull trout story on this. I took down, you know, I've got bad ADD, so this is why I'm going back and forth. I took down the bull trout video on YouTube because so many people were sending me nasty comments about, oh, you can't fish for bull trout in Idaho. They're an endangered, threatened species. And I'm not getting into the politics of that, but and I've already done a story about catching the bull trout. But it was that was the same rod, the seven foot five weight I bought when I graduated high school. We go all through um the South Africa, I, we go down to the Indian Ocean where it meets the uh, Atlantic, the southernmost point of Africa. And I don't have my saltwater rod with me, so I just walk around the uh, the tide pools. I caught a goby with my bare hands in the Indian Ocean, so you can say that I've caught fish in the Indian Ocean. So I've got Indian, Pacific, and Atlantic done now. I caught fish in the Galapagos. So I'll put that down. G-A-L-A-P-A-J-O. Galapagos. Okay. So I will tell stories about the Galapagos at some point. So we're in South Africa and we do all the vineyard tours and um, it's awesome. Just every vineyard within a 10 minute radius, we're getting lit up. It's great. There's like cheetahs walking around at these places. And one night we're in our hotel room. I don't remember where, maybe Stellenbosch. There's a bar. I'm sitting there watching MacGyver reruns. And I always remember this night because there are about 15 pillows on my bed. It was so comfortable. And I'm just lying in bed watching MacGyver at like 730. I'm like, all right, I need to go find some alcohol and some action. 
So I lock up the hotel room. I just walk down the street and a stranger in a strange land. I don't know what I'm doing. Eventually, and, and none of the convenience stores sell booze. I'm like, come on, man. You're killing me here. Just want a six pack of Toffel Lager, which was the beer I drank out there. I find this upstairs bar with a band playing. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages. Things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. It's got the greatest logo of any bar. Just the logo outside tells you this place is where you want to drink and where you're going to meet great, hilarious people. It was called the Drunken Springbok. Springbok is a type of antelope. It's like the national symbol of South Africa. But it's not just any Springbok. It is a Springbok in Lederhosen, which I think is the term for like the outfit you wear at Oktoberfest. So he's got like the knickers on and the suspenders and the ruffle shirt. And he's got the hat with like the little badger poof on it. And his arms are out with his elbows bent. So his hands are in and his feet are kind of like dancing a jig. And it has this just drunk look on its face. So I walk up and I'm like, Hey, I want to get some beer. And they're like, you know, $20 cover. And I look in and there's like four patrons drinking with the band that's playing. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not paying that much. I'm on a budget down here. Can I get a t-shirt? They're like, oh, sorry, mate. We don't sell t-shirts. It's like, well, you guys should, because that'd be a gold mine. So um, that's that. And then a couple of days later, Heather's dad drops us off. We get a car to go up to the Medikwi River Lodge. And let's Google that right now. <laughs> Medikwi Lodge. All right. Luxury Medikwi Lodges, game reserves. Uh, Medikwi.com, M-A-D-I-K-W-E. And that was probably my favorite of all the lodges. Our guide there was just absolutely brilliant he knew everything about the animals um he just he knew the biodiversity he knew the animals when there was a dead hippopotamus carcass just sitting out in a field that it come up from the water and died i was like i need to get a close-up picture of this and he goes all right i'll give you 10 seconds he gets up puts three bullets in his rifle aims just to the left of me and says, you've got 10 seconds to get out because the lions, you can't see them when they're in the bush. They are the same color. You can hear them like eating a carcass like 10 feet away inside your vehicle, but you can't see them. So I literally had 10 seconds to get out, take a picture and get back before something could get to me. And hopefully he would shoot it before I did that. And the Medikwe is named that because there is a stream that goes through there, the Medigwe River. And we go for lunch the first day, and there's a bridge between the restaurant area, the dining, and the car park, which is what we call a parking lot. And you look down, and there's catfish in there. I'm not talking about, like, the 18-inch channel cats we catch here. I'm not talking about the big blues you get down at the Wilson Bridge. I'm talking Jeremy Wade television show size catfish. Those ones that they show in all the extreme fish programs, 
I think they're whales, catfish. They, they were about five and a half to six feet long. Their mouths were, they looked like a Frisbee from the front view. And you could take olive bread from your table and throw it in there. And they would sip olive bread off the surface. And they are stacked up in the river like cordwood. And of course, I'm thinking, I've got a seven foot five weight. How am I going to land a five foot long catfish? I was going to take a clouser and cut everything off and just put the bread on the hook. I'm like, well, I got an eight weight, but you know what? The eight weight's broken. So to this day, that was May or June of 98, maybe July. I still regret that I could not catch those catfish on that trip. To this day, I am still bitter at the fact that I had no other backup rods, that there was no backup rod and reels there. There was nothing to allow me to pursue these catfish with a rod and reel, which is why you should always travel with double the gear, not at five and eight, but a five and a five and an eight and an eight at the minimum. I'm going steelhead fishing this week. I am bringing a 14 foot nine, three nine foot eights, two nine foot sixes, one 11 foot eight and one 11 foot six, because you never know what's going to happen. You don't want to be at that location. And be, meanwhile, we were five-hour drive from Johannesburg. We're in the middle of nowhere. It's not like I could have gone to a tackle shop and purchased another rod and reel. I was screwed. We're in the middle of nowhere. You know, in the middle of the night, you hear noise. You walk outside. When you went to bed at night, you were in a forest. When you wake up, it's gone because I heard elephants came in in the middle of the night and ate all the trees around you. That's the Africa story. Puerto Rico was actually... Spring break of junior year. So I took tropical ecology class and the lab was you go to Puerto Rico for a week and we stayed in the worst dives of all time. I'm talking, you pull your sheets back and there's an iguana in your bed. You're sleeping with rain dripping on you from the ceiling. There are spider webs in the actual like toilet bowl. It was disgusting. And since I went to an all girls school, my girlfriend didn't trust me. She was pre-med. She signed up for the class just to keep an eye on me. So it was myself and our professor, Dr. Fuller. He was the only guy on the trip. And he made me stay with him every night. And there's two things I learned from staying with my professor that night. One, this is kind of mean, but he had a massive comb over that no one knew about. And two, he wore a nightshirt to bed, like a V-neck t-shirt that went to his ankles. Very bizarre. And he always got the good bed. I would sleep on like the pullout sofa. And the places were a dump. So I bought that eight weight to go to Africa and I figured I'd try it out there. And we're supposed to go up into El Yunque rainforest the first day. But of course, uh, with my luck, we get 19 inches of rainfall in three hours due to an El Nino and the entire mountains are blown out with rain. We literally drive by houses and you can see like pots and pans floating out windows and doors. It was insane. So I didn't get to fish the rainforest. Then we go down to... The southern coast, you may know it because there's um, a bioluminescent bay. Like, well, sweet, I'm going to fish the bioluminescent bay at night. Well, that never happened because people on the boat were scared I'd hook them. But we're staying on this little island, and there's fish at the piers. I go down there, and I fish for, I mean, there's like groupers and snappers and yellowtails and needlefish. I mean, every kind of reef fish is around there and I'm throwing shrimps and clousers. And at this point I only had lefties saltwater book of flies and maybe his VHS on how to tie saltwater flies that I dubbed. You remember dubbing videotapes? I dubbed from 
Angler's Lie when it was at that point still in Cherrydale, Virginia in Arlington. So I had like five or six patterns that I feared I had to tie. Shrimps, some streamers. That was about it. Some Charlies. And I can't, I mean, the water is like 15 feet deep. You couldn't get it. You could spit a loogie in the water and of course they come up to eat it. They want to bite anything. So I gave up. And while we're down there, the captain of this boat comes up. He works for the University of Puerto Rico at the station. He's like, hey, my friend, tomorrow I go out to a horse eye jacks. They're this big. And he holds out his hands and they're twice the width of his shoulders. Horse eye jacks. Very strong. Very big, my friend. You come. And I was like, man, I, I got to go out with uh, the group, you know, to go snorkeling tomorrow. And I asked the professor and he's like, yeah, if you want to go, I mean, go ahead. But this is a part of your grade. And I'm like, crap, man, I need to. So I couldn't go fishing with the dude because of grades. So we go out on this little panga or Zodiac. About five minutes into the trip, a pod of tarpon roll next to the boat. It was the first time I'd ever seen a tarpon. And it was this greenish blue silver beautiful fish and i've got like a total raging boner at the moment and i'm like stop the boat stop the boat and everyone's like what are you talking about it's just it's girls in bikinis worried about their tans basically that are there to get a grade and nobody would stop the boat no one would go back for me to cast at these fish so i was pissed and then it turns out our guide for the day wants to go spear fishing instead of teaching us about the coral reefs and then my girlfriend and i End up getting pushed onto a coral reef covered in fire coral by a rogue wave, which shredded my bathing suit. And she got these, I mean, we were shredded and bleeding our legs and arms. It was, it was not fun. I should have said, screw the grade. And I ended up only catching on the entire trip, a peacock bass. But again, with my bare hands due to the floods, when we went out at night, I'd, I'd been to the Amazon in high school. So I'd, Kind of gotten used to going out in the woods with a headlamp looking for stuff. We found the giant toads, which I learned on uh, Reading Rainbow, LeVar Burton. He went to Jamaica, and they called them mountain chicken. He's like eight-inch high toads that pee on you. when you Every toad's going to pee on you when you pick them up. It's the fence. So we're out in the woods, and the coquille frogs are blistering loud. And I find some puddles that have been left over from the flood. And I pull out, I'm pretty sure it was a peacock bass with my bare hands. So that counts for fishing in Puerto Rico. Next, and this should probably end the sad stories of not catching fish. So I'm going to ruin it for you. I did catch fish on this trip. Our honeymoon, which is almost 10 years ago, when Alana and I got married, we wanted to go to Kauai. So we fly out there. And if you're going to fly somewhere from the East Coast, go to the Caribbean. Make it like close. Don't spend 26 hours traveling to get there because that's 26 hours times two that you're not like drinking and partying and fishing and having fun. So we go on the honeymoon to Kauai. We've got this little um, like condo unit for the week, and I bring sixes and eight weights, saltwater rigs, clousers, poppers, uh, just a whole variety of saltwater. And by now, I had you know worked in a fly shop for years, had a bunch of saltwater flies, had read Dick Brown's book on bonefish. I'd worked in the Keys for a while. I was pretty sure I could go out and do some DIY bone fishing. The first stop we go to is Polahale Beach. You might recognize Polahale from movies and commercials and film dick dale a year ago filmed probably three years ago now filmed a commercial there where you the backdrop of the rock walls and cliffs we go there all i catch is an oeo which is or maybe popio popio is a small trevally jack get down on a clouser done i caught my first fish in hawaii i'm all stoked and at that time i was a web developer 
for the federal government as a contractor. So I had like months of time. My job, literally, you would not have work for three months and just had to be there. So I did a lot of research on fly fishing and all the island spots picked out. So I knew what flats to go to. So we tried each flat and we get to one and I'm walking around. I'm not catching anything, but my friend there, um, Eric, he's a local Hawaiian. He's using cut up bait. He catches a bonefish about 18 to 20 something inches. I mean, it was big. He catches on a bait and I get it. You know, actually see there are bonefish in the Kauai Islands, the Kauai, the Hawaiian Islands, specifically Kauai. And he guts it for me and the stomach is full of nickel sized pink crabs. So I made a mental note. If I ever come back, nickel sized pink crabs, we get pictures holding the bonefish and you start to learn that the reason there's very few fish off the beaches is because the Hawaiians hook and cook pretty much everything they can locally in shore. So there's not that many fish around. You really got to work for them. I'm like, all right, well, our friend Angela, who lives there, and she's got the cool job. Her job is to find the locations as a scout for film, print, media, TV, everything else. So the movie The Descendants, she worked on that. You know, like Jurassic Park, Indiana Jones, Dick Dale. Any of these movies that were filmed in Hawaii, specifically on the island of Kauai, it's her job to find the locations. And she has to have the talent entertained while they're there. So she's got connections with like horseback riding and helicopters. So we got a great deal on a helicopter ride. And then she's got a friend who does tours around the island in his boat. So she's like, hey, I bought Tuesday morning, meet us at the boat. We'll go out, we'll see the island. We'll have a picnic lunch. We're like, sweet. All we got to do is pay for gas. So we go on the boat and we're at the Hanalei Bay Marina. And Hanalei Bay, if you've never driven through it, that's where Puff the Magic Dragon was from. There's just a green, dark cloud of funk on the road because everyone's smoking so much weed there. It just blows in and settles. You can go in the grocery store, no shirt, no shoes, no problems there. I will tell you that, I don't remember the name, but I got food poison in one of the places. It's Laird Hamilton's favorite lunch plate. I got so, within five minutes, I was chundering. That's another story for another time. So we're loading all the coolers and stuff on the boat, and I've got my four rods and like a, a boat bag captain's like oh no 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 there's no room for fishing gear here and where we're going there's gonna be no fish write this down when a non-fly fisherman tells you a there's no room for fishing gear and b there's not gonna be any fish where we're going do not listen to them they don't know what they're talking about that's like if a brain surgeon asked me questions about doing a surgery now granted when i drink a lot i will tell you that i'm a highly um, regarded surgeon and that I have to sober up because I have a procedure in the next afternoon. Don't listen to me because I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm not a brain surgeon. I listen to the guy. I put the gear back in the Jeep. We tour around the island. We go and it's like glass. There's dolphins coming up next to the boat. We go through lava tubes in one side, out the other. We go to beaches where you can't land boats, but you can swim to shore. So Angela's boyfriend takes off all his clothes and swims butt naked, and he stayed naked the rest of the day, which with what he had, I mean, there's no question why you would be naked if you were that endowed, if you wanted to show things off. We swim to that beach, we play around, we swim back to the boat, and then we go to drop anchor, and there's buoys where we drop anchor because everyone eats lunch there, all the tour boats go there. As soon as we parked our boat, the water turned black. They were black trigger fish that swam up from the depths that knew the sound of engines shutting off. They were bigger than trash can lids. The minimum weight, I would say 20 pounds on them. And they would eat whatever you want to throw. Rice, tomatoes, lettuce, potato chips. 
Whatever you had on the boat, you could throw out, and these fish would come up and eat off the surface. If I had a skipping bug, a clouser, a sneaky peat, a gotcha, you name it, a gurgle bug, on an eight weight with like a strong tippet, I would have been catching these fish all day long. But I couldn't because I listened to the guide on the boat who didn't know about fishing and had no clue and screwed me. Now, the one redeeming thing about him, two stories. On his 18th birthday, his mom bought him a prostitute and his second wife divorced him because he worked on Playboy photo shoots and his job was to sit on a cooler full of grapes on ice. Before the photo shoots, his job was to take the frozen grapes and put them on the women's breast assists and that would sort of make them um, ready for photographing. So he had a bunch of stories. However, I'm still bitter. It will be 10 years this June that... I did not get to fish on my honeymoon for those fish. Now, I fished all around the island. I didn't really catch anything other than lizard fish and that trevally. But it was a beautiful trip. If you're going to do any Hawaiian islands, I've only done two, Oahu. And I may or may not have done a podcast on it, but I definitely did a blog about it. Oahu, good. Kauai, better. And if you go to the website of mine, robsnoy.com, and you click on maps, there's places to eat there. Some of the best food I've ever had was on that island. All right, so let's talk a short story here. Two parts to this. So the first time I go to the Salmon River, New York, it's 2001. So it's 12 years ago, 10, 11 years. I, I'm not a math guy. So Tom had already been up there the year before. I couldn't go because it was the weekend my brother got married. Tom knows the spots. He, he met some friends of one of the guys in the fly shop. This guy named Doug was a C-130 pilot. And he was, I guess, from Pennsylvania, and he had a bunch of friends from Wilkes-Barre that go up there all the time. One of them now owns property on the lower black hole, which is now owned by or regulated by the Douglas and Salmon Run. So I still need to find the guy. If I tell him this story, he'll remember me, and I can get property access there. So Tom's like, yeah, man, we got a campsite from our friend Larry. Here's the map. And it was like drawn on a wet napkin with like a broken pencil. I'm like, dude. This is the worst map ever. So we leave two in the afternoon. We're up there midnight, 1 a.m. driving around. This is before GPS and cars or no smartphones. We are lost. So we're driving down this road and we're in the middle of nowhere in the hill country or whatever, northeast of Plasky and Altmar, New York. And I've got a mag light. We're looking for this just kind of cut out driveway into the woods. And I've got the mag light on while Tom's, Tom's driving at like a snail's pace. And we're driving, we're driving, and I'm lighting up the road with the mag light. And out of nowhere, there's a man standing in the boondocks with black rubber boots, like green wool pants, some kind of flannel shirt, a baseball hat with his arms at his sides. And he's looking at me. My flashlight is pointing right in his eyes. And if you ever heard Ned Flanders scream, if we can have that inserted here, Jason, that would be awesome. That's what I did. And I told Tom to mother effing floor it and get the F out of there. This man was standing on a rural road in the middle of nowhere looking at us. And I almost crapped my pants. It was one of the scariest things of all time. Next to looking at a leopard that's looking back at you. It scared the crap out of me. We eventually found what we think is the campsite. 
and I'll be camping there this Thursday with the whole crew. So I'm going to pause this real quick because I have a call coming in from New York. That was Melinda from Melinda's Fly Shop. You've heard me talk about her before from Fly Shops you need to go to. She doesn't really have a website. She's in Altmar, New York. My corker's boots broke, and I don't know what to do because I'm going steelhead fishing this week. So I went over to Urban Angler today and talked to Richie, and Richie takes the boot apart, figures out what's wrong, calls corkers. Whole customer service comes together. Corkers calls me tonight, and they're like, man, we can overnight them to you before your trip. It's a replacement part. I was going to go out and just buy a whole new pair of boots, spending like $200. But Richie's like, dude, you just need a replacement kit. So Ari calls me tonight, and he's like, dude, we can, you know, unless there's a shop near you, I'm like, we got Orvis stores, we got Urban Angler, but I'm going to Pulaski, New York this week. And he's like, Pulaski? I'm like, yeah, maybe Melinda's or... You know, one of the other shops will have me. He's like, I just sent two replacement kits for your boots to Melinda's four days ago. They should be there today. So I called Melinda an hour ago and left her a message. Said, I'm coming up on Thursday. Do you have the kit? Call me back. I'll pay for it now or Joe can pick it up for me. And she just called and she's like, hey, I've got it. Stop in whenever you're up here. And I'd already told everybody that's where I want to spend my cash when I'm up there to buy fly time material. And that gives you more reason. She called me back. She's putting them on hold. I don't have to pay for them until I get there. It's awesome. All right, so what I was talking about earlier. So we're in the lower fly zone. And I can just tell you straight up, I didn't catch a fish on this trip. I was throwing the wrong flies. I wasn't listening to Tom's advice. And he's hooking up. This is Columbus Day weekend, you know, the busiest weekend of the year on the Salmon River. And I don't know if I was in a bad spot. Uh, maybe I wasn't drunk. Who knows? But um, Dave and Pete walk up and Julio and they recognize Tom and we all start talking like, Oh, come back to our campsite tonight at Selkirk shores. You know, we'll go tie flies. And, um, you know, before like an hour before sunset, Julio is like, looks at my flies. Like, not nah, nah, you can't be throwing that. He looks at my fly box. He picks out a black bead head flashback hairs. here and says, tie that on. He says, you find a female salmon digging a red, you throw it over her back and as it sinks downstream with the current, there's going to be a steelhead behind her or a male trout waiting. And that male trout's going to, or male salmon is going to be super pissed. Either bite your fly or that steelhead's going to eat it because she's digging up her red and she's kicking up bugs. I do that. Five minutes, I'm on to my first fish. I'm like, all right, we'll go back with you guys. So we go back and, you know, we grill up some burgers and we're talking and everyone goes to take showers. We go to bed at like 11 p.m. Everyone's been drinking since dark because you can't fish after dark up there. And we go in our tents. The plan is to get up in the morning at like 4.30 and go to the Douglas and Salmon Run, get in line and get tickets. So Tom and I go to Tom's tent. And there's one thing I've learned is don't share a tent with another dude when you're on a fishing trip. We eat the nasty food. You know about waiter farts? Well, that's what your tent's like. And you already know this. So I don't have to tell you. I don't share a tent with anybody anymore. About... 3.45, 4 a.m., I'm woken up with screaming, blood curdling, not the big storm that brought like 40-mile-an-hour winds off the lake, screaming that's going through the wind. You can hear it, and then lights going all around. You hear somebody screaming like, hey, you a-hole, you effing this. I told you it's not for kids. You effing S-bag, you D-bag, you MF-er. I effing drank your piss. And Tom and I have a headlamps on and we look at each other. We're like, what is going on? Well, it turns out it was like Dave or Pete or one other person 
was in the tent with another guy. The other guy had brought in an empty water jug to piss in at night so he didn't have to get out in that cold front to urinate in the campsite. Well, it turns out the other guy in the tent didn't realize that it was a jug of pee. He thought it was water to drink so he wouldn't be hung over in the morning when we got up at 4.30 to go to the Douglas' salmon run. So he guzzled that urine good. And it was a good while before he probably figured out it was pee. It was probably warm. And he done drank it. The entire campsite had lights on. Everybody woke up and they're looking out their tents. They're looking out their RVs. They're looking out their trailers. We are laughing. Well, he kicks the other guy out of the tent, basically just pulls the tent stakes out of the ground, throws the tent with everything in it in the back of his pickup truck and hauls ours back to Wilkes-Barre at 4.05 a.m. And we're all laughing about that at sunrise Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. But it's the second time he's done it. He had done that the year before. He drank out of somebody's pee jug in the tent. How do you make that mistake twice? It's not possible. So we uh, went to the Douglaston. I hooked my first steelhead. It was a fresh chrome, probably 20 minutes out of Lake Ontario, and it peeled itself back. I didn't land anything that trip, but... um, I go back you know, one or two times a year, and we are leaving this Thursday morning. Got a whole group going up. We are going to podcast an interview with Joe, and we're going to podcast everyone else at the campsite. I have a client who makes me moonshine, and he gave me two gallons of shine to take on this trip. It's apple pie, and I've been tying up dozens and dozens of flies, so we'll let you know how that goes. So the next story, uh, I've done crazy flashlight, man. Let's talk about Harker's Island. This was the fall of... 2000 probably the fall of 2000 i was a temp at a dot-com company out in centerville virginia that had more money than they know what to do with that's because the dot-com collapse hadn't happened yet so every friday it was beer and chinese food and i was making 650 an hour at orvis and probably 11 bucks an hour there so i would take home all the leftover chinese and that'd be like my food for the rest of the weekend and you would be at your desk and you get a phone call that it was your turn in the ping pong or foosball tournament. It was a pretty basic job. I would just sit around and eat like ding dongs all day. And we would play soccer because our floor was supposed to have 80 cubes and only had six. So there's plenty of room. And I'll always remember this because there was a forest fire and I was looking out my windows during the fall leave change first week of September or November. And it's just this crazy ethereal fog mixed with, smoke from the forest fire out in the mountains with the leaves. It was a very cool scene. And we went to Tom's house, dropped off the car and we were with Haywood who runs a fishing lodge in Belize. I'll put a link up for that. And we are going down to Harker's Island to fish for albacore. Tom's a junior in high school. I must've been 22 and who knows how old how old Haywood is. And we had, Tom by then was uh, assistant manager of the Orvis store at Tyson's. And some 
saltwater guide at Harker's Island called Tom up and said, Hey, I'll give you guys a free trip. If you come down and fish with me and then put up cards in your shop. Tom's like, booyah. So we get into Haywood's car and Haywood's a Texan. He's from Waco. Big dude, big truck. He drove like a Dodge Ram, like 8,900. It was like four feet off the ground. You could almost stand up in the back. It was like driving with four or five lazy boys in the cab. We take off and this is back when MapQuest was the only way to get directions. So we don't know where we are. We're driving down these back roads of, I think Virginia, maybe North Carolina. And every time Haywood saw a sketchy gas station, he would pull in and get Tom and myself a 40 ounce beer that the deal was we had to drink it before we got to the next like sketchy sketchball convenience store. So Tom and I were absolutely pissed drunk and we pulled into Harker's Island at like two in the morning. We all slept in the back of Haywood's car because it was big enough for three grownups. And that was when Tom was big Tom. He got skinny Tom. He's big Tom again. And we get up in the morning at like six to go meet our guide. I'm not even going to mention his name, but he was basically a major tool. We get there and all the guides are sitting around drinking coffee together at the dock. And then there's our captain just kind of kicking gravel and looking at his shoes and checking his watch. No one was associating with the guides. That was kind of a key. And he, we get there and he's like, gosh, guys, I'm really tired. You know, this big storm blew and we got to wait for the fog to blow off. What turns out the night before he was out in the sound or bay and he didn't have a GPS and he got stuck with the fog or maybe this was two nights before, whatever. But the guy got stuck in the fog on his boat and had to spend the night on his boat because he couldn't find his way back because he didn't have electronics. So he tells us, go get your licenses, go get breakfast, come back at like nine, we'll go out. So we're out there and we get to the first blitz of albacore. I've got like a nine weight rod with a big reel and a cheap ass leader. I bought at Orvis that I didn't know how old it was. And I cast into the blitz with like a three quarter inch clouser and boom, I'm hooked up. Well, Captain Dummy backs our boat up towards a houseboat that was anchored and my fish wraps around their anchor line and breaks off. So I'm beyond pissed. It was probably the strongest fight I've ever had. Richie from Urban Angler said he's going down there this weekend and more power to him because that place is awesome. I stopped uh, going down there because I started going up for steelhead. So we decided to move around other locations. Haywood and I both hook up land albacore. I'm trying to get an awesome picture for my maybe website at the time. Just an awesome picture to put on the wall of the fly shop. And Captain is in the picture. Like This is before the term photobomb. But he's back there with a derp face. Ruining every picture we're trying to get. And that was great Captain. And then Tom doesn't have a fish. So we decide we're going to go out and chum up some albacore. So we get out into like some big water and captain starts getting seasick. Now captains, they're not supposed to get seasick. That's just, that's part of the thing. So he's getting ready to like toss his cookies and he starts telling us stories. He's like, I got to tell some stories because I'm going to get sick if I don't. So apparently he, he's a big fan of the cocaine and he gets his cocaine from a morbidly obese white woman that he goes over to her house with a bucket of KFC mixed fried chicken has sex with her, and then she gives him cocaine for free. 
She especially likes to have sex on the hood of her car, which was just like icing on the cake to the bizarre things this man was telling us. And we're looking at each other the whole morning as to say, there's no way in hell this guy's card is ever going up in our shop. And he decides that he needs to go get a bag of cocaine and smoke some weed that he has back in his hotel room. So at like one in the afternoon, he goes back and, you know, he's like, all right, thanks guys. Have, have fun. I'll see you. You know, when you come down next and put up my card and this guy, I mean, he was a moron. He couldn't find the fish. We each caught one. Tom hooked one fish, but lost it. The, the leader broke. And the guy was the worst captain ever who gets seasick, who tells stories like that to their clients. And then he comes up to us. We're like finished with our dinner. And he asks us to like order him a pizza and a round of drinks when we're already like paying our check and getting ready to like drive to a campsite for the night. But I can tell you this. If you're going to go out down there, find a reputable guide. Don't use MapQuest. Make sure your leaders are strong and hold on tight because the albacore is one of the strongest fighting fish I've ever encountered. Stronger than a channel catfish, stronger than a snakehead. These things are, they're scombrids. That's the family of fish. They are built for speed. They got those little finlets on them. That's all they do is swim and swim hard and fast and far. And when you hook one, they turn on the power and they take off. So look people up down there. I've got links for uh, Sarah Gardner on my website and for her husband, Brian Horsley. They're going to take you out down there. I've got clients who go out with them regularly, and I think you'll have a great time. And let me check to see if i got time for one more story. Let's talk about Fredericksburg. So I told you we worked at Orvis and Tyson's Corner, and Orvis back then didn't have a whole lot of company stores. It was just like Tyson's Corner, New York, uh, Dallas, Chicago, not even like Boston at the time, San Francisco. So they would have what's called Orvis days. They still have it. They just don't do it as elaborately. They would have um, pheasant and quail and chucker flown in that we would cook, wrap them in bacon, bacon wrapped scallops, venison meatballs, like free sodas, bottled water, hors d'oeuvres, cheese. And we'd have all these great speakers coming for the day. It was like a total to do. And that store would have like, you know, hundreds of people coming through the doors just that day. There were special sales going on and you could meet guides and book trips. And we decided we were going to go down. It was April of 2000, April of 2000 or 2001. I don't know. It was a while ago. So I remember that I was on antibiotics. I wasn't drinking, but the first thing we did was dropped all of our gear off at my college friend's house, Brian. He hadn't graduated yet. So if he hadn't graduated, it must have been his fifth year. I graduated in 99. This must have been April 2000. We get down there, drop our gear, and we go fishing for like an hour at sunset. It's a Saturday afternoon, and we're hooking in like stripers and shad. Nothing big, but the sun's going down, and everyone wants to go get drunk. So we go to Jay Bryan's tap room, which is one of my favorite places to go get a pint of Guinness in college. And I'm sitting there drinking like Cokes all night. And Tom is, I hope Jay Bryan's in the ABC board aren't hearing this. Tom was still in high school. He's a junior. Oh, scratch that. I got to go back to the Albacore story. So I'll come back. So we get back to Tom's house to get in our cars and Haywood has his idea. Let's go to strip clubs. And Tom's like, dude, I'm like a junior in high school. I can't get into a strip club. And I don't think I'd ever been to one before. I mean, the whole time 
we're driving. Haywood's telling us about strip clubs all over the South. He loves him a strip club. So we go to Tom's house and Tom like changes his clothes and we haven't showered in like three days. We've been out fishing and camping at the beach. And Tom's mom goes to her purse and grabs a stack of ones and tells us to have a good time at the strip club and gives him like 30 bucks in singles. We get to the strip club and Tom's Russian. We're at good guys in, in DC on Wisconsin Avenue. And we get up there and he cards, bouncer cards, me cards, Haywood. We're good. And then he asks for Tom, Tom, his mom is Russian. He speaks fluent Russian. So he starts speaking Russian to me and Haywood and I start speaking gibberish back to him. And then we look at the bouncer and say, this guy's from the Russian embassy. We met him in museum today. He wanted to see naked women. Um, we said, we take him here. He doesn't have his passport. It's back at the embassy. We start speaking gibberish to him. He speaks fluent Russian back to us. Who knows what he's saying? The bouncer says, give me $10 and I'll let the guy in. So when Tom went back to school on Monday, everyone was talking about like how they did so well on like Mario Kart, you know, on Saturday night drinking Mountain Dew. And he's telling them how he was like checking out strippers and putting dollar bills in their G strings. It, it was a pretty hilarious story. And from there, we went to a party in, in Northwest DC and, um, I just remember there was a girl dressed as like Axl Rose and it was very frightening. And I was wearing my Orvis tailwaters waiting jacket, which is a huge pocket in the back. And the first thing we did, we got there is we cleaned out the fridge and put a ton of beers in there. And luckily enough, they ran out of booze at about 1 a.m. And Tom and I and Haywood were good for the night. And um, that was a that was a fun evening. Fun. fun. I'll, I'll tell you more stories about that evening when we're on the river, if you ask me. They're not going to be as bad as what the crazy captain in Harker's Island said, but they're still good stories. So back to Fredericksburg, we're drinking and they're just pissed drunk. We go back to Brian's house and he's just like being a wet blanket. He's like, you guys are being loud. You guys smell. Could you keep it down? And stone is like, dude, let's go fishing. It's still dark out. There's stripers at night. I don't know, guys. You shouldn't go out. I mean, yeah, he's right. We shouldn't have gone fishing at night, but we're all experienced anglers. Granted, everyone else was drunk but me. So Stone gets his idea that we're going to drive over to Falmouth Flats, which back then didn't have a gate to keep you out at night. And Stone says, let's drive my car into the river and we'll stand on the hood and roof and we'll cast for stripers. And Tom and this guy, Brian, who was with us. Oh, okay. Now I got to go back again. So Brian is this little dude who plays rugby. He's like 5'4". He always reminds me of Billy from the beginning episodes of Baywatch. After Jay Brian's, we went to another bar in Fredericksburg. And we're up there, and Brian gets a a pitcher of beer, and we sit down, and he says, guys, there's three things I do. I play rugby, I F chicks, and I fly fish. Four things, I should say. Uh, I play rugby, I F chicks, I fly fish, I get into fights. Who's with me? And he starts going around the bar pushing dudes. This is Fredericksburg. You know, it's kind of a, there's some tough dudes down there. And he starts trying to get in a bar fight. And he's like, you guys got my back, right? And we're like, no. So at some point we decide we're taking it back to Brian's house. And when we get outside, he starts like getting all crazy because he wants to get in a fight. And out of nowhere, he just slaps Tom across the face. And Tom's glasses go flying across the sidewalk. These are the parts of stories that come back to me. So, Nick, I, hopefully these are the kind of stories you wanted as opposed to, like, me drifting a grasshopper through a hole and, like, a trout eating it. I'll get to those, apparently, at some point. 
So that's when we go back to Brian's house. And then I said, all right, well, I'll drive us all down in Stone's car to the river and we'll go fish at like 2.30 in the morning. And there's gas stations up there with lights. You can see in the river and we're down there and there are stripers crashing bait. I think there's so much bait. We couldn't hook a fish. You could feel the force from striped bass swimming between your legs and past your legs, chasing alewives, herring, and shad. And it sounded like bowling balls just going off in the water, like someone was on the Route 1 bridge throwing them off. It was crazy. I don't think anybody, you know, we may have hooked some and lost some. I don't think anybody landed a fish. But at about 4.30, we decide we're going to go to sleep. Stone and Brian go back to Stone's car to sleep. And Tom and I slept in the riverbank. We just pulled our jackets over our head, tightened the zippers, put our hands in our pockets, slept on our waders. At some point, Tom, I think while we were fishing, before we went to sleep, decided he was thirsty and he wanted to take my water bottle that filters the water in the river and then it filters on the back end and then the front end you drink the water. But apparently he didn't use the filter right, so he actually just drank straight up river water. And about five in the morning, he woke up with the worst case of diarrhea you can imagine. He got Giardia. If you don't know what Giardia is, it is when Giardia intestinalis, an amoeba, gets into your digestive tract. And one amoeba turns into two, two to four, four to six. And they just multiply exponentially until they coat the lining of your digestive tract. And your colon, the main purpose besides fecal formation, which that's more of your rectum, is to absorb water back into your bloodstream. So if your colon is completely coated in amoebas, the water can't get into the bloodstream, so it all comes out. So he had diarrhea in his waders, on his waders. The only thing he had to wipe with was quote-unquote airline tickets, which were glossy. So by sunrise, he's in a bad shape. We keep fishing. He's going in the woods like every 10 minutes. We eventually wade a mile downstream. We're in downtown Fredericksburg. And I'll never forget this Fred Vegas lady who walked by us and said, with maybe three teeth. She looked like a white picket fence that a pickup truck drove through. Them boys got mighty long fishing poles to her friend outside the Ben Franklin on Caroline Street. And Tom found the public restroom. was in there for about an hour. And then he's like cleaned out his system. He's done. So we decide we're going to walk back, find stone. Um, and I forgot to tell you, God, I should write these stories down. Before we went down river, stone and Brian had slept in the car. Stone had slept in the back of the SUV with the seats down. Brian had slept with his face where your feet would go in the passenger seat, one foot between the headrest of the passenger seat and the side of the car, one leg and an arm over the armrest for the driver and his face down in the car. I've got pictures of it somewhere. And by sunrise, we'd split up. Tom and I went down river. Brian and Stone went up river. We all found each other at about four o'clock in the afternoon and decided to drive home and get Tom. I think he went to the hospital eventually. He had the worst case of diarrhea. And that night, I'll never forget it, was the laughing about Tom crapping everywhere. The lady with the no teeth making fun of her poles. Brian's quote that he fights fly fishes and has sex with girls. Now, Brian's got other stories. Like He would be late. I could do stories just from the fly shop. He was late one day because he had to get bailed out of jail. I think he was in a bar fight. He went to GW in DC. Another time he was late on Saturday morning or Sunday morning was because somebody at the party in his house threw a sofa through the window and he had to get the window fixed before he could come to work. And another one of his stories was he came home from the library, which surprised me because the guy studied. Now I see him on Facebook. He travels all over the world into some crazy, crazy adventures. 
but he came over from a party and saw like 200 people in his house he didn't know. And some guy came up after he's like, who are all these people? And he said, hey, your roommates rented us the house for $100 and a keg of beer. The keg of beer is upstairs, and I don't know where the $100 is. So that's what kind of roommates this guy had in college. Um, just crazy stuff from Brian. It was hilarious. The fact that he slept face first down in a car and didn't rupture a blood vessel on his head is still amazing. And I still want to go back and do stripers at night there, which I don't know if you're allowed to do, but it was one of the crazier, crazier nights I've ever had with the guys. I think I can end with that story. We'll keep this podcast just about one hour and I'll do part two, maybe now, maybe another night. So let's get um, series one, episode 43, fishing stories off to Jason. We'll call this part A or part one, and then I'll do part two. And uh, Nick, I hope these are the stories you want. I don't really know. Um, I could give you scenarios about fishing and some other places, but these are like the shenanigan fishing stories. So I hope you like it because there's going to be another hour coming at you. Thank you all for downloading. Jason, I'll see you on Thursday afternoon. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com. Spend your Saturdays with life on the water. Join Captain Brandon Simmons for fishing, diving, travel, and so much more. You want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Oh, look at that thing, dude. Wow. Oh. <laughs>
<laughs> Let's see what kind of trouble we can get into today. Don't miss Life on the Water every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. <laughs> the destination for outdoor entertainment. Join Captain Justin Leake and Meredith McCord for the best fishing action along Panama City Beach. Tune in to Chasing the Sun every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.